if this is your first time, we're thrilled that you're here. You will see these little sheets of paper lying around the room. That's important because the way this works is that Brian and I will talk for 20, 30 minutes, something like that, and then we'll throw it open to Q&A. You can text in anything. It's all anonymous. But what you'll need is this QR code on the top is where you can submit any question related to tonight's talk or not. And um, if you see questions on there that you like, go ahead and like those, and that'll boost them up a good bit. So is Colton, Colton, are you doing the t um, stuff tonight, the Q&A? Uh, Mary Hollis is going to do okay. the questions tonight. But I was going to make a quick pitch yes. for our walk for water on March 26th. So walk, walk for Water um, comes from a local organization here in Charleston that was started by some St. Philip's parishioners, and um, it's called Water. That organization is called Water Mission. And over the last, what is it, roughly 20 years, roughly 20 years, they've helped millions of people around the world get access to clean water. Um, you know, we're so fortunate that we can open up a tap and get water at a, you know any minute but there's a lot of people who have to walk miles a day to get access to clean water and water mission um, has helped you know millions of people again around the world get access to clean water in their community so they don't have to do that walk so on March 26 at 9 a.m. Um, they will be doing a walk for water here in Charleston you can join the st. Phillips team via the QR code um, on the little papers that are spread around the room and I was, whoa, that is really loud. Uh, it is so much fun because there usually are somewhere between three and 4,000 people um, that turn out for this walk. So you can walk with uh, three or 4,000 of your closest friends. And an extra reason to support Water Mission right now is they are on the front line of re uh, responding to humanitarian needs in Ukraine right now with uh, people who are displaced uh, and providing clean water for them. So it's a great cause. Yeah, that's pretty, and I think they're opening up, am I on? Is this on, hello? Chris? It was. I thought it was. It's not, it doesn't sound like it's on. It is? You can hear? All right, well great. Um, I think they're opening the like food trucks and everything this time for Walk Forward, if I'm right. So it's gonna be a lot of fun, it'll be a big party. Which is what we're talking about tonight. You That's like right. that segue right there? Uh, so, that was brilliant. Um, Thank you. Happy Mardi Gras. Thank you. Uh, we're talking, nice beads. Yes, yes. Um, so, likewise. <laughs> but, yeah. So, Mardi Gras, what is that? Well, first of all, tonight we're going to talk about celebration. The idea of, of, of partying, having a celebration, and the role of that in the Christian life. Uh, I think that should be an interesting thing to talk about. But uh, because it was Mardi Gras, we figured that would be a good way to talk about these things. What is, first of all, Mardi Gras? So Mardi Gras, for all of you French scholars out there, stands for Fat Tuesday. Um, it's also known as Shrove Tuesday. And it is the last day of what in many countries is called Carnival. Um, carnival comes from the Latin carne, which means meat, and vale, uh, which means farewell. Um, farewell to meat, because in the... Uh, ancient Christian church, uh, the season of Lent was a season of fasting from meat and from many other things, uh, including butter and lard and other stuff like that. So Mardi Gras, um, Fat Tuesday, came into uh, being because it was the day on which 
you cooked something where you could use up all of the fat and butter and stuff like that that was in your house. That is why there's an ancient tradition of pancake suppers. Uh, many of us just went to the one at St. Philip's. Uh, if you want to do something really random, go home and Google UK pancake races, uh, because in the UK, um, for at least the past 1,200 years, and maybe longer than that, they have a tradition of pancake races, where women have these skillets with a pancake, and they run with them. It's very weird, but that's okay. That sounds awesome. Um, so all of that is the lead up to tomorrow, which is Ash Wednesday, uh, which is the first day in the season of Lent, which is the season that we uh, look toward Holy Week and Jesus' death on the cross. Yeah, so um, you want to say a little word about well, Ash Wednesday? We, we, well, we do Ash Wednesday services. If you've never been to one, I'd encourage you to go. You're not going to find a lot of places in the world where you are put like have ash put on your face for a reason uh, to remind you that you're going to die. Uh, that's one of the things that's kind of neat about the Christian faith is that uh, you're basically having your mortality up front and personal and there's actually a lot of hope and goodness that can come from that. So we'll talk about that tomorrow. It's 8 o'clock, noon, and 6, I think. Right. And there. Lent in the Christian church really is a time of refocusing, thinking about what are my priorities? Am I living my life the way that I want to? Am I in tune spiritually? Uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we have this modern fad of doing a detox. Um, Lent, in some ways, is like a spiritual detox to get uh, back on track again and get your spiritual priorities straightened out. Yeah. So uh, what would you, how would you answer the question, what is the role of celebration in the Christian life? I would say the role of celebration in the Christian life um, is a huge role. Uh, one of the quotations that Justin and I both love from C.S. Lewis, Justin also really likes C.S. Lewis, not just me. Uh, <laughs> one of his quotations from Letters to Malcolm uh, he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. And so this whole idea of celebration and joy is really at the heart of the Bible and at the heart of Jesus' life and at the heart of the kingdom of God. So this whole idea of celebrating is uh, part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. It's not an accident that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding feast. Um, that is not this kind of thing that would happen in a place where we looked down on celebrating or a faith that said celebration is a, an unworthy thing. Yeah, and what I loved about the, his miracle at Cana is this feast presumably would go on for days. I mean, this would be a party where like the entire town would come together for the wedding. Uh, the same thing is true uh, I think in the parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son where they kill the fattened calf and they throw this giant party. In Middle Eastern culture, it was like a communal town sort of act, you know? And I wish, I wish the church in America in some ways could reclaim this idea of really throwing celebrations for really important things, mm -hmm. you know, like a wedding or, you know, baptism or confirmation. Like uh, if you've been to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah before, you recognize that like they throw all out parties for stuff like that. And Christians, I think, could uh, celebrate these important moments in the Christian life, I think, better. Yeah, I think it's something that we could definitely lean into more. And one of the things that is amazing when you look in the scriptures, 
when they're talking about what it's going to be like when finally um, sin is defeated and the new heaven and the new earth come and we are with Jesus. Uh, one of the images that's used all the way through from the Old Testament right up through the book of Revelation is the idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is like this incredible banquet and feast and time of joy. But I think that uh, for many of us, we get confused about this because our culture's idea of joy and celebration has gotten fairly far away uh, from the biblical understanding of that. And all you have to do is think about, I don't know how many of you have been on Bourbon Street in New Orleans on Mardi Gras, um, but that is uh, maybe what our culture calls celebration, uh, but it would probably not be exactly the same as a um, Christian understanding of joy and celebrating. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that evolved with the idea of like, okay, the fast of Lent is coming for 40 days. Let's just throw all out, um, you know, debauchery kind of things going on. Let's get all the sins out before the season of like penitence. You know, that's probably a bad way of thinking, <laughs> you know, um, it's in in Lent or whatever. I think there's like Sundays or the, the feast days. So you break the fast or whatever. So if you're giving up a particular sin, it's probably not a good idea to be like, all right, my fast time, I'm going to do this, and I'm just going to go all out on my sin on this, like, one day where I'm supposed to do that. So right. that's not a healthy view of celebration. That's not what the Bible says. Um, so wh what are, like, the limits of celebrating, I guess? Like, how would you define good celebration as opposed to bad celebration or what you're thinking? That's about? a great question. I think one of, the, one of the things that differentiates really good celebration and uh, a Christian understanding of celebration is the fact that joy and celebration are always relational. They are things that we experience together that cause us to love each other more deeply, to love God more deeply, to experience that joy in being together. And um, one of the things that I think is different in our cultural understanding, a lot of times what we think of as celebration in some ways um, is more akin to self-medicating that we just want to drown the pain or drown the sorrow or drown the loneliness, whether it be with, with alcohol or drugs or whatever it might be. But it's not something that um, builds up our relationships with other people. And I wanted to just share, there's a, a great book of liturgies uh, for life that talks a little bit about feasting with friends. And this um, opening of this really, I think, captures a little bit uh, I think what the Christian vision of this kind of joy and celebrating. So just listen. Uh, it says, to gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word, but the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidence of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and will be unending. And I think that captures a couple things. One is the joy 
that there should be in celebrating, the fact that it's in gathering together, that it's around good pleasures that God has made, food and drink um, and being together, um, the comfort and joy of that. And I think that the more that we lean into celebrating that way, the more it will touch our souls. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this idea of you know lo- having celebrations and parties. Like it can really, I think, looking at why it is that you're doing that. If there's a motivation or a drive that is uh, longing for fullness, like if you're looking for something to fill you in that, then that's probably not healthy celebrating. There's an emptiness inside you that you're longing to fill. Whereas I think Christian celebration is always from, I'm already filled up and I can overflow in relationship with other mm-hmm. people, but I could properly enjoy the good gifts of God. You know, I was thinking one of the things, I mean, even in Genesis chapter one, the very first chapter of the Bible, God is creating and he, he talks about how he's ordering the world together and, and the whole cosmos. And on the seventh day, he rests from all of his work. And you're like, what does that mean? Why is God rest? Like, what does it mean for God to rest? Well, uh, some scholars say that actually what he's doing there is enjoying what he's made. He's enjoying the goodness of it. And I think for many people, you can, like, they think Christians are against, you know, alcohol. They're against, like, the physical enjoyment of things in this world, food and all that. They're just kind of killjoys. But God himself and Christians truly, if they believe what the Bible teaches, is that these things are good gifts that must be stewarded rightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say an example of that, I was very fortunate in one of my previous careers to spend a lot of time in France and spend a lot of time with clients who happened to own really great vineyards in France. And so that meant we had the opportunity to have a lot of really amazing world-class wine. And the idea of having a really great wine that's been paired by an expert chef with a really good meal is an amazing thing. And if you contrast that to uh, the idea of just drinking shots to get hammered, um, you know, it's a very different approach to the gift um, that wine and alcohol can be. And I think that that moderating influence enables you to really savor that wine because you know if you just took that wine and you're just chugging it that would not be the same experience of having it paired with the meal and enjoying it uh, as a whole evening pass with that one bottle yeah i think also yeah not just the volume but also the frequency of of celebrating and partying like there's a reason why in the christian year you have seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting. Mm-hmm. And I think if you only had one or the other, it would be an incomplete picture of what Christianity actually is. Like we believe that, um, you know, if you think about feasting and celebrating, it's all about certain occasions, you know? And I love the story of the prodigal son. Like he keeps that fattened, the father keeps the fattened calf and um, all of the, you know, the the different aspects of what goes into that party are stored up and saved for this special occasion. And it's precisely because these are set aside for something Mm -hmm. significant. They're not used uh, frivolously all the time, but are saved up and then enjoyed properly in certain occasions. Is I think a really good picture of what it means to be like a human who's celebrating well. 
Yeah, and I think that's why most of y'all probably heard somebody ask when they're talking about Lent, what are you giving up for Lent? And um, it's not because it like makes you holy if you've given up something for Lent, especially if it's something that you don't like. Uh, but part of, part of the reason that we give up something for Lent is not only the discipline of it, but because when Easter comes, then you can have whatever it was again. And that's something, if you've given up something that you really love, it adds an extra measure of joy in that whole feast of Easter, which is all about joy. And so that having deprived yourself for that period of time um, enables you to experience even more the joy and fullness of celebrating Easter. Yeah. I think that we can default to the two extremes often, right? Like, you can be a workaholic who's all about your basically not having any sort of social fun at all, and your life is just dull and dry because you're nose to the grindstone and it's a good thing to to be told okay there's seasons of feasting and you Mm -hmm. should do that and likewise the other extreme of all you do is just party all the time and like actually there might be something good for you in in having a season of self-denial right so i I think there's a lot of wisdom uh, in that now i would say the other thing is that there are a lot of pleasures in the world that god has created and there's a great section in Lewis's Screwtape Letters about how Satan has never been able to invent even one pleasure. That every pleasure that there is, is God's invention. And all Satan can do is to try to twist those pleasures so that we take them in a way that diminishes them or um, makes them wrong in some way. But that when we live into those pleasures and we're honest about what we love doing, that is a really good thing. And one of the things I love about the story of Lewis and Tolkien's friendship is that part of the way they got to be friends is that somebody posted a notice at Oxford about anyone that wanted to get together around a fire and read myths in the Icelandic language. Okay? That is probably not a notice that most of y'all would respond to. <laughs> like, oh, I can't wait to go read myths in Icelandic. Um, But Lewis and Tolkien, both of them loved the Icelandic language, and they went to that. There was this group called the Coal Biters, and they would sit around by a fire and literally read these things, and they found such joy in that. And so whatever it is, whatever pleasure it is that you find joy in, finding some other people that also find joy in that uh, can be a great way of experiencing that kind of celebration because again as we said in the Christian faith joy and celebration are not things that happen alone um, they're things that happen in community all right I gotta share I'll share the C.S. Lewis quotes this time please right? so I know that you really Take like my that. platform Go I'm right gonna do ahead. that but this kind of goes there uh, this quote talking earlier about like what's the motivation for your celebration like why do you find yourself doing it Um, Lewis says this, he says, most people, if they really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do, uh, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never, uh, quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I think that goes into what you were saying earlier about looking um, for experiences or certain things in this world, whether it's a relationship or 
money or some other sort of like physical thing, um, we can look to those things and hope that they're going to fill us and we can latch onto them with all that we are and hope that they're going to provide what we think they're promising they're going to provide for us. Um, but he goes on to say this other quote that uh, we both love is uh, that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us in God. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer out of a holiday at the sea. So we're far too easily pleased by the things of this world when the most exciting, the most uh, incredible thing that we were made for to fill that is God himself, right? And so, yes, the gifts that he gives are good, but they all point us back to that one thing that our hearts so desperately long for, which is himself. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that so much of what... uh, the world passes off as celebration. When we lean into that fully, we come out of it feeling so empty because we had such high expectations that this finally, I wasn't going to feel lonely or this was going to be such a great time that I would forget all the things that had been really hard in the past few months. And invariably, when we lean into those worldly kinds of celebrations, they just can't deliver. And, uh, One of the beautiful things about Christian joy and celebration in the context of real fellowship is that it does deliver, that there is is a satisfaction and a peace and a rightness and just a profound joy that comes in those times that the world just cannot replicate. Even so that you find that that joy is there, not even in the celebrating, but also in the moments where you aren't celebrating and the hardness of life when you have God and you have that relationship with him, when you're right with him, there's a joy even in your trying circumstances and in your sufferings and sorrows that is, it wouldn't be explainable. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure you've felt this too, where you, you kind of don't even know why there is this buoyancy or there's mm-hmm. this joy, even in something that's so terrible. Um, you know, and, and yet that's a true experience that Christians have. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that part of the reason for that is that we get lured into thinking in our culture that our joy and our happiness have to depend on our circumstances. And when everything's going the way we want it to, that then we'll be happy. And if our circumstances are not the way we want, that we cannot experience joy. But the fact of the matter is that if our priorities are straight in our spiritual life and we are in worship and fellowship and in God's word, we discover that joy, just like Justin was saying, will well up at the most unexpected and amazing times. And sometime um, in your free time, go read the book of Philippians in the New Testament. It's really short. It will take you maybe 30 minutes to read it. It is one of the most joyful books in the whole Bible. But the interesting thing about it is that the apostle Paul, when he wrote it, was in jail. He was in jail. Most of us would not be writing about great joy if we were in jail, particularly if we were chained to the wall, as most scholars think he was. But he was able to transcend those circumstances because of what he knew to be the truth of who Jesus is and the kingdom of God. Yeah. And kind of the, the antidote or the opposite of Paul in jail was one of the guys I thought about in uh, the Old Testament, King Solomon who was a king of Israel who was richly, I mean, he had more money 
more palaces, more women. He had everything. And uh, he basically talks about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, um, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom about how to, and how to lay hold of on folly to see till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during their few days of light, life. I've made great works. I've built houses. I've planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools for which to water, from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and slaves were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both, I mean, he's still going here, men and women, <laughs> and many concubines, uh, which are like prostitutes, sons of the, uh, the, the delight of the sons of man. So, I mean, he's pretty much, he's got like everything you could imagine from like a worldly perspective is what he's got. Uh, and he said, uh, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all of it was a striving after the wind and vanity, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So it's the polar opposite of a guy like Paul in prison who has no joy, and yet he has everything in saying it's all a striving after the wind. Yeah, yeah, and I think we, we fall into that so easily, particularly when we're busy, because when we're busy, it's easy to just fall into a cultural model of celebration which may be just going and getting wasted on the weekend, which is not really very satisfying. Um, but I think if we would actually like try to plan creatively and lean into the pleasures that God has made for us, and particularly when you live somewhere that's as beautiful as Charleston is, and get out of the box and do things like go for a walk on the beach at sunset or um, go out somewhere where there is not a lot of... Um, artificial light and look at the stars at night um, or just make dinner with friends or cook something you've never made before um, you know there's so many things that you can do that are out of that um, mold of just hitting Upper King Street um, that are much more filled with joy yeah. well I and that's pretty much what I think that might be a good spot to uh, turn and see how we're doing with questions Mary Hollis we're good yeah, we've got a lot. So if everyone, if, even if you aren't asking a question, you can scan the QR code and then vote for the uh, the different questions that you want to hear asked. And we'll ask the questions based on the number of votes that they have. Thank you. And we're going to give about a minute, and uh, we'll get you a mic so that you can actually speak into it. <laughs> and while we're waiting on that, uh, one thing that we... Uh, we're talking about with Colton today something that has been a little bit of a surprise to us. Some of you may know that there is actually a podcast of Theology on Tap uh, where these are recorded and people are actually listening to that, which is somewhat amazing to Justin and me. Um, but we have been encouraged to try to get a little more uh, play for that. And so one of the things we were going to ask y'all is if you would go to either Apple Podcasts or the St. Philip's site um, and find the podcast. And if you like Theology on Tap, um, give us a good rating or write a review or something like that. Um, that will help increase the audience um, for that podcast. And that's something that uh, 
we have heard from people that have found it that it has been a blessing to them. So we would love to get that word out there. Yeah, and if, if you have any thoughts too, we'd love, I mean, this is less than a year that we've started this, and so we're always looking to hear your feedback too. So please uh, feel free to hang out and chat with us about anything like that too. So. Okay. Hold on. You're good. Try. I'm going to wait for Chris's cue. He's giving you the thumbs up. <laughs> Do you want to? We, we can. Okay. Oh, hey! All right. Celebrate your time. <laughs> All right. Our first question is: What would you say to the faithful Christian who is longing for joy in the Lord yet still feels sorrowful and depressed? That is a very good question because that is where I think a lot of people find themselves. So I think if you're longing for joy in the Lord but you're still feeling sorrowful and depressed. There are a couple of questions to ask yourself. The first is, what are things that I know about me that have brought me joy in the Lord in the past? And are those things in my life, and am I making time for them? And one of the things I realized a couple of years ago is something that brings me great joy is praying with other people, um, but I had squeezed that out of my schedule so it didn't ever happen. So that kind of thing, that can be sort of a a quick fix if you see some things like that that you need to add in. Um, another thing is that I think most people find that joy in the Lord and worship are deeply connected to one another um, as well as time in God's word. So I think that can be something that's helpful. Talking with someone who's an older Christian um, about that there may be some things going on in your life uh, that are weighing you down that you need to um, share with a brother or sister in Christ to stop carrying that burden alone. Um, and then I also think praying for a joyful spirit and looking for uh, things to be thankful for, practicing gratitude uh, can be a huge help in that as well. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I, the first thing I would say is you're definitely not alone. That's such a common experience. I mean, I experienced that a lot in my own life. And uh, just like Brian said, there are a lot of things you can do, but I, I would also want to say that it's not always formulaic. You know, uh, sometimes joy can evade you and surprise you. And uh, But with that said, I do think that there are certain things that you can do that can help cultivate the likelihood of joy. And so, uh, like he said, having friendships, I'd look at like, how are you eating? How are you sleeping? How are some of the spiritual disciplines of, you know, reading the Bible, praying with other people? These are all things you can do in community together. Uh, making time to do things that you actually enjoy. I think that's getting harder and harder to do sometimes. Uh, but like you said, either going for a walk or actually taking a day off of work and resting. Like those are things that I've found to be really helpful for me in my own life when I feel kind of depressed? Good question. Brian said that Satan doesn't create any pleasures, but he twists it so it's bad. So what about drugs? For example, coke, marijuana, ecstasy. Is there a place for psychedelic drugs in Christian celebration? 
I would say no uh, to that, which is probably not a big surprise. Um, and I would say that those drugs themselves are not pleasures. I would say those are things that have been um, taken and used um, in ways perhaps that they were not intended, um, not for humans to use in that way. But I think that any kind of um, drug is something that is uh, not what uh, would be the fullness of what God would understand as pleasure. So uh, basically, that would be a no. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you could see right there is like medicine is a great gift. Like that's a technology that God, like that's a good thing and it can be perverted, it can be misused in ways that don't fall in line with God's will. And I think that's a perfect example of like the enemy basically taking something that God made good and through the influence of the enemy, like people can use this sort of thing. Uh, I think anytime you're altering your state of mind beyond the ability to have sober judgment, I mean, sobriety is a virtue all throughout the scriptures. And so I think even when you look at something like uh, drinking alcohol, obviously, I mean, we're doing that right now, but there's a difference between being impaired and un being unable to make uh, wise and sober decisions and then being uh, so influenced by, by drugs that it can do that. Yeah, and one of the things I love in Scripture is Scripture, um, you know, in one place says that God gave man wine to make glad the heart of man. Um, but in other places, we are told that drunkenness is the opposite of being led by the spirit and that's over and over again that those are contrasted with each other and if you think about it drunkenness is basically saying i'm in charge um i'm going to take this body that god has given me and i'm going to do um, to it with the substance something that it was not really designed for um, which is really selfish uh, and the joy that i think god usually wants to give us is other centered Good question. Last time you said men are in crisis but didn't really explain. Can you explain what you meant? I think Justin said it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, what did you mean? Would you like me to explain what you meant? Yeah, I have no idea what I said. I just say stuff. I don't know what I mean. Um, men are in crisis. So well, let me let me talk want... about that for a minute while you think. Um, so that was wise. Uh, we actually talked about this in a class that I teach, so I, I have some stuff in the front of my head about it. But the, by a lot of cultural measures, men are in crisis. Um, depression rates for men are at an all-time high. Loneliness is at an all-time high for all sorts of people, but men particularly. Men over the age of 40, there's some horrible statistic, which is like maybe two-thirds of men over 40 say they don't have a single close friend. Um, it's really, really bad. There also is a, um, what I would call a crisis of masculinity. What, it, what does it mean to be a man in this culture? Because so many things that, you know, we've been sort of the iconic American images of men, like uh, the cowboy John Wayne type uh, person. A lot of these images are, um, for good or for bad, uh, being taken away and so i think there are not a lot of good male role models there's a crisis of fathering um, particularly in uh, the inner city of absent fathers and so boys growing up with no role models none of this is to say that women don't have plenty of issues as well but that men are particularly 
in crisis in this cultural moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think it sounds exactly like what I meant right there, Brian. Thank you. Um, I would say, particularly now, uh, if you look back in the very beginning of the Bible, what Adam fails to do is he fails to step up and lead well. He allows, uh, basically, uh, the serpent to come into the place that God's put him, and he doesn't do anything. Like, he should have stepped up at that moment and stood for what God had said to do and kicked the serpent out. And he just is passive. And in fact, it says, like, while Eve takes the fruit, Adam's right there with her. Like, and I think you see that throughout, that's the common sin for men. But I think it's on full display today. I think a lot of folks are passive. And, uh, with, and this applies to men and women. I mean, obviously the anxiety, depression, but also the delayed adolescence. Like, the being willing to commit to, um, to do work, to not always have to feel like you've got to have a certain level of financial income to be able to, uh, you know, even the desire to be married. I think like a lot of men have always feared commitment, but now because of uh, what, you know, all the comfort that we have in our society, men have been in more of a passive role than I think ever before. And what we need, what is helpful for all of society are, is godly men who are willing to, to lead well, to, to sac- which is always defined in servant leadership right. sacrifice right yeah. and who who are committed to following Christ loving their neighbors christian and non-christian and and treating all people with with kindness and and sacrifice so i think that's one of the things that i would say probably is what i meant to so. <laughs> good question how does the anglican church defend its claim to be the one holy catholic apostolic church as said in the Nicene Creed. Okay, so um, that is actually not an Anglican creed. Um, that is a creed that is across denominations that was developed at the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. So we we don't claim to be the only um, church that is faithful to that. We would claim that we are part of that larger church body which is faithful um to that yeah that's, no that's, that's a pretty simple answer it's we're not claiming to be the one but we're saying that we are basically part that was written in like the 300 so um that that's the the christian church that we are a part of that you said um so it's not distinctly anglican by any means i hope that's clear next how does someone combat shame of sexual brokenness? Uh, that is another great question. I think we live in a culture um, where the gift of sex and sexuality has been um, profoundly broken for a while at the cultural level. And one of the things that's really sad uh, that is so very different from what you see modeled in scripture and through most of Christian history is this whole idea now that people define themselves in terms of their sexuality, um, that that's the most important thing about them. And that has never been the case in terms of what does it mean to be fully human. But I think for many people, um, because there is not good teaching and good cultural framing about the gift of sexuality, there are a lot of people that do experience a lot of brokenness in that area. And there's a lot of shame that is attached to that. And so it's something that people very often 
are hesitant to share or to talk about. But the thing that I think is so important is the way to be able to move through that is to share that burden with someone, whether it's a counselor or a minister or um, a very trusted friend. Because things that stay in secret and in the darkness are the things that have power over you and that cause you to feel that kind of shame. And when you can bring it out into the light and talk about it with someone, um, there's a reason that scripture says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because a lot of times Satan loves, you know, Satan is called the accuser and the father of lies. And he loves to come after you, even after you've confessed sin and say, oh no, 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 you are really bad. You shouldn't have done that. You are shameful. God couldn't love you. You can't approach God. All those kinds of lies, which is why um, bringing a trusted advisor who's also a Christian um, can really help you deal with that. Yeah. Um, I deal a lot with young people, and so this is a very prevalent question uh, in my own life and in other people's lives as well. And uh, what I've noticed, I think, is that just what you said, the Satan's favorite angle to accuse people is over sexuality and it's not a question of like who's sexually broken it's everyone is sexually broken just to what degree and um echo everything brian said if i have like two minutes to share this story that was so powerful for me i heard this one pastor who uh, grew up basically and he and his uh, christian friends they were in college and there's this single woman that lived next to him and uh, she was she was older. She had a kid who was like seven or eight years old, and um, they basically were trying to. She wasn't a Christian, wasn't coming to church, and like they kind of s- tried to sneak her to like this Christian worship night that they were having or whatever. And so they didn't really tell her what exactly they were bringing her to, but they got a babysitter for her and they brought her. And she realized, oh, this is like a Christian worship thing. This is really interesting. Well, the speaker gets up, and he has a rose out, and he. It's like, they're like, okay, this is interesting. He's like, we're going to talk about sex tonight. And so he's like, I want everybody to smell this rose. And he passes it around this massive auditorium. And he's like, now, now everybody's got to smell it. It's so beautiful. And it goes around the entire auditorium. And, by the, and his talk is just like fear-mongering about like STDs, all this terrible stuff. Like, you, this is, you, you know, nobody's going to want you if you do this sort of thing. Uh, and at the end of the talk, it, like his crescendo is he gets this rose and it's just mangled and falling apart. And, um, and the guy's climax is like, now who would want this? And it was like the Christian who brought this woman who had a child out of wedlock. She's a single mom. He's like, what is this woman thinking? Why? And the message of Christianity is Jesus wants that rose. Like that's the whole point of Christianity. And so I think sexual brokenness is one of those ways that it's just so powerful um, when we feel you know, naked. The very beginning of the Bible, we try to cover the nakedness of our sexual shame and our, our, our shame in general. But um, I think the, the biggest thing in fighting that is recognizing it is not your merit, and whether it's sexual or uh, any other way that you break the law of God, it's purely... God's love for you that gives you an identity and a stance to, to be on. So, Good Great question. question. Weren't Jesus' parties wild? 
Let me see. <laughs> um, that depends on how you define while. I would say Jesus's parties definitely broke a lot of cultural barriers. Jesus hung out with a wide variety of people, and he enjoyed being with them. And he was willing to eat and drink with people that were um, considered disreputable and sinners. He was willing to hang out with prostitutes. And so if you, if you think about that as being a wild party, um, then maybe so. But the other thing that you'll notice is that when Jesus is in parties, his disciples are with him. And they are, um, they are invited places. Jesus and his disciples wouldn't have been invited places if they were killjoys and no fun to be around. Uh, but the flip side of that is we also know from Scripture that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. And so there's no, no kind of record of Jesus doing anything inappropriate um, at parties or anything like that. Yeah. That was a great answer. I wouldn't have gone there with the thinking about the Pharisees who started getting on him about who he was associating with at, you know, at the dinner table. And, but that's exactly what he did. Um, but I think the idea is, yeah, all of the, the very end of the Bible is this wedding feast. It's a, a wedding party with God and his people. And so um, is it going to be great and enjoyable? Yes. Like how you define wild, I, I guess, like what yeah. you said, it's not sinful. Uh, so, yeah. Yep. What is the church's view on women who claim to be men and vice versa? Okay, so that is a very relevant question in this cultural moment. So I would say that the, the church's view is that all people are created in the image of God, that every person is deserving of dignity and respect and of love. That being said, people that are struggling with their gender identity um, the understanding of the church is that God made each of us in the gender that he planned for us. And that when we live into that gender identity that we've been given biologically, that that is where we will find wholeness and peace and joy. And that when we try to um, make our feelings instead of our biology our guide, um, we can easily be misled. And that is, that is not a view that is very popular in our culture right now, um, but it is, I think, the view that is consistent with the uh, Christian understanding of creation and God's intent, and that the, the biology of each person um, is something that uh, is part of God's design for them. Yeah, I think you have to start with the fact that every single person, no matter what they think, what they feel, how they identify, their sin, like, we're all sinners, right? And yet we all have infinite worth because God has made us in his image, right? And you can't lose that. There's not some people who are like, they're more and they're less. Like, and Jesus associated with all sorts of people. And that's really, that's where you have to start, yeah. right? And um, just as you said, I think... Uh, going back to something I said a little bit ago, the idea that, again, what this is called gender dysphoria is the um, the technical term, 
And the reality is all of us experience some sort of inconsistency, some dysphoria in our own lives, right? From what we feel in our bodies to what we think in our minds. And I think that's really important to recognize that in some way, even though it may not be exactly the same, all of us have are on the spectrum of experiencing dysphoria, this sort of incongruence in our mind and in our bodies. Um, and, and yet, this is a really important thing, and it's not just Christians who are saying this, but also people outside the church. You really lose what it means to be, like it's really bad for women and, and bad for men, because you lose what does it mean, like if all you have is, I feel like I'm a man or I feel like I'm a woman, you're basing that on a stereotype if you remove the body from the equation. And so it's actually, and this is not a, this is Christian and non-Christians who are saying this today. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Like, if you're only basing masculinity and femininity off of certain stereotypes as opposed to a biological body that you have. Um, which is a reality. That, which is a yeah. reality. That, that's, that's problematic. So, but, but again, it always, it starts and it ends with we're not afraid. We welcome you. We can be with you. Jesus did that sort of thing. But we have to, like, we love you enough to actually say what scripture says. So, sorry. Yeah, that's good. Good question. How does church exist in harmony and consider other denominations valid when they have teachings or doctrine that directly contradict? There can only be one truth. Can you say that again? How does church exist in harmony and consider other denominations valid when they have teachings or doctrine that directly contradict? There can only be one truth. Okay, that's what I thought. Yes, so I would say definitely there is only one truth. Um, I would say there's only one gospel. That's something you see um, Paul saying in the scriptures pretty often. But there can be disagreements among Christians about um, certain aspects of the Christian faith. And there's, a, there's an old saying uh, that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things charity, which is the traditional way of understanding the different denominations. So for example, there may be different views about the practice of baptism or something like that um, among people who are deeply faithful Christians. Um, that would not be a problem. However, if you had something like uh, a group that did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that would be an essential that you could not recognize that as being another um, Christian denomination. Yeah. This kind of goes back to that, how can Anglicans believe the whole, the one holy Catholic thing? What I wanted to say to that question was like, what we try to say is like the largest possible uh, boundary lines, I guess, to be a part of the church is where we draw the line, you know? So like, Jesus is the Lord, like there's the Trinity, um, that he died on the cross for our sins, like the big things we need to have unity in. But when it comes to things like, well, should the church be governed by bishops or by just like deacons and presbyters or like other forms of church government? What do we believe about views of the sacraments, that sort of thing? Those are things that scripture isn't like infallibly clear on, or I shouldn't say infallibly, but like absolutely clear on. And so there can be that disagreement. Reasonable people who are deep yeah. in their Christian faith can apply those scriptures differently. And I think that's a yeah. great opportunity for Christians of different denominations to recognize it's good to have conviction about what you believe and to talk about it. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about that and to disagree, maybe, or maybe convince one another. But 
it's a it's an opportunity to say look at the things we do have in common and and we do recognize that we have far more in common than we have in disagreement yeah. so maybe one more yeah one more maybe two depends on if it's a short one <laughs> okay we have um some jokesters and some potential um political uh yes political commentators perhaps commenting in here so maybe we'll get those on a future one when we go through all the questions that we didn't get to before i like that so with this one okay what would be a christian approach to handling someone who gets involved and you and your friend's business even after trying to not engage. Okay, so that could mean all sorts of different things. Uh, generally, I think when someone is in your business, um, when you feel like it isn't their business, uh, there has been some kind of breakdown in communication in the relationship. So I think one of the things that is important is to surface those issues. And a great passage to look at for this is Matthew chapter 18. Um, and Jesus talks about what to do if you have a problem with a brother or sister in the faith. And what he says to do is to go individually uh, and alone to that person and sit down with that person and explain as best you can um, what you perceive to be the problem and then to try to work through the problem and see if you can get to peace and resolution. And then if that doesn't work, then you bring another Christian friend with you and try it again. And I think most of the time, uh, when you actually do that, it does resolve the situation one way or the other. Um, the problem that a lot of us have is that if we have an issue, like if I had a problem with Justin, um, because he's so difficult to get along with. Um, if I had a problem with Justin and I just went home and told my wife, Justin is such a jerk, you wouldn't believe what he did to me today. And then she's like, that's terrible. He shouldn't have done that. You know, I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm right. And I'm going to get just worked up about it. Well, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't solve the relationship problem. The only person that can solve my relationship problem if it's a problem with Justin is Justin. And I don't need to go talk to anyone else about it except Justin. And that, I think, is often our problem that we go and talk to other people about the issue instead of the person that's involved. Yeah, that's a great answer. I don't have anything to add to that. That's great. I don't, I don't really understand. Are we, are we good? Are we good? I think we're good. Can, you, can Jane not hate me too? I mean, I don't know. Do we have one more good one to end with? I don't know to do like say that was bad but that was come on we got a better one that we can end on so i'm going to read just a comment and then i'll move into the final question a so a comment that comments. made it to the top of our upvotes is uh, brian kind of looks like a pimp with his necklace <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not a question <laughs> okay well there's that happy mardi gras okay thank Bye. you so much <laughs> i've been aspiring to look like wait that might have been a like they may have used right. that as like a compliment I don't know what that means. Final question. How do you feel about Christians saying that politics shouldn't matter right now when it comes to Ukraine? Shouldn't Christians hold our leaders accountable? That is a great question. Um, I think that politics shouldn't matter. That can be interpreted in any number of ways. If you take that to be the interpretation that regardless 
of where you sit or stand politically, that you are praying for the people of Ukraine, that you're praying for peace, that you're praying for God's will, all of those things, because you are focusing on that above and beyond any political agenda, then yes, politics don't matter. The flip side of that is that we are encouraged um, to pray for our leaders. Um, we are encouraged to be good citizens. Um, all of that means that we should be active in the public sphere. But we also need to be very careful to not ever think, as I think we said last time, that salvation is going to arrive on Air Force One, um, that we live in a profoundly broken world and no matter what our politics are, that brokenness is always going to be there. Again, that's just, I have nothing to add to that. That's excellent. Yeah. Uh, that was really good. I'm glad we, like, it's been a time right now, I think we're all feeling that, like, just of unrest in the world. And so I don't want to eschew political questions because I think they're valid and important. Mm -hmm. And that was a great answer. So. so thank you so much for coming tonight. This is a lot of fun. Feel free to hang out. Uh, thank Clark. Make sure you uh, tip well. We're so thankful for the Fenry's folks that allow us to use this place. And uh, feel free to keep the conversation going and hanging out with us for a while. We'll and be we'll be back in two weeks. Two weeks, we'll be back in two weeks. Don't know the topic yet. It'll be great. Uh, come tomorrow, too, to Ash Wednesday, if you'd like. So, it'd be great. All right. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.